What great truths are wrapped up in these hymns that we sing, aren't they? What a blessing to be able to express really what's tucked down deep in our hearts. Thank you, Blake. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 16, I titled my discourse to you this morning, Peter's Supreme Confession, Matthew chapter 16, well, beginning with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. As we think about this particular moment, it is really quite an interesting watershed moment, if you will, in the lives of the disciples. While Jesus had been revealing who he was as the Son of God, the Messiah, this seems to be a really important moment in that revealing of that reality. In leading up to this particular point in the text, Matthew records the disciples' lack of faith. He, re he records an account of the shallowness of the emptiness of, or the, the emptiness or their dead words. He records how we can often be defiled by what comes out of our mouths, for that really reflects the nature of what's in our heart. Matthew also records that there is a power that comes from having a true faith in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus has the, both the desire and the power to heal, to save, to shape our lives and to mold us. And so as we enter into chapter 16, we see kind of an interesting shift in how Matthew is unfolding the text. We see the Pharisees and the Sadducees revealing ultimately the emptiness of their heart as they ask Jesus, give us a sign. Show us some reason why you are Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Shall I pause? So, in that... <clears throat> The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in asking for a sign, had they not been seeing many examples all along of Jesus performing signs and wonders. And so there's a bit of hypocrisy in their request. And then we see the disciples' continued lack of faith. And then we hit Peter's great confession or supreme confession. And so this is kind of how Matthew leads us up to where we're going to settle in this morning. My objective for us this morning 
is really in many respects for us to recognize one is that is that to simply say Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, if all we're doing is giving lip service to that reality, then I would tell you, then you may not be in Christ. For that lip service, I mean, for that expression, that declaration, that true and genuine confession should translate into the realities of our lives. How we think, how we act, what we do, the nature of our love and our compassion for one another. This is, must be a reality that comes from this confession is a life lived in light of that. And in light of that, we must anticipate that we're going to be hated by the world because the world hated Christ. This is the path that is before the believer. And so in many respects, as we've been talking about longing for eternity, we recognize that we are here for a purpose, for a season, for a time to accomplish the declaration of the greatness of Christ to a lost and dying world. But when the end of our individual times come in this world, we should, I think in many respects, only embrace it. While there's much to leave behind and many people we love, there's a longing I hope that will grow in your heart as you get older to want to long to be with your Savior more and more. As a Spirit-filled expression, I would love us to, to recognize that we are a slave of Christ. That our lives are not our own. We do not belong to us. And that our eternity is secure in Christ Himself. Often Christianity can be termed a list of do's and don'ts, a religious system. Our heart and our mind now belong to Christ, and so in light of that, we're not moral beings alone. Our lives are not measured simply by the, by the effort and the output, the good, the bad, but who we are in Christ, and that should be an overflow, an expression of that reality. And so Pete, what Matthew's doing here with Peter is he's recording this supreme confession, more, not as a historic account, but because it is a very critical moment in the lives of the disciples. Because in their declaration that Christ is the Messiah would ultimately cost them their lives as a direct result of that declaration. So to know Christ is to embrace Christ in faith. To have faith in Christ is confess Him in truth. And to confess Christ in truth is to live with His Lordship over each and every one of us. And so what Peter and all the disciples wound up doing is their lives were lost as a result of who they were in Christ. But because of who they were in Christ, their lives were found and they had eternity and that's an important thing that we as believers need to keep in mind it's while we don't desire pain and we are anxious often about the end and we recognize this house of flesh will one day cease because of who we are in Christ there is a 
eternity set with a new life and we get to be with our Redeemer for eternity. And then we press you that direction. My outline for today will be, who does the world say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? We'll look at the supreme confession itself and the great joy that this confession ultimately produces is the church. So the first point here is, who does the world say Jesus is? Who is the world saying the Son of Man is? It doesn't take much for us to recognize that the world sees Jesus differently than how we do. It doesn't take much, does it? Even in their affirmations of Him as being real, there is a distinction. Ultimately, what we see is they are rejecting His deity. In some cases, they reject His existence. Sometimes, He's simply just a good teacher or a prophet. But we never see that affirmation from the world of His deity, of His power as God Himself. The people identified here in verse 13, I think could really span a couple of groups. One is it could be simply the Jewish people as a whole. It could be simply the people who weren't Jewish but were kind of following along with Jesus. And in some respects, it could be the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And it's interesting, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, is Jesus gathering data that he's going to be able to use to modify and adjust how he does his ministry moving forward? He's not, is he? In fact, does Jesus really need the information? He doesn't, does he? He is the creator of the universe. And so he knows who he is and how he wants to move through this world and reveal himself. The Pharisees looked at Jesus, and I can't help but think to some respects, they knew the Scriptures, but they were blind to the depths of the Scriptures. They knew what it contained. They knew to be looking for the Messiah. But where the Jewish people weren't really content with who he was in content, I think the Pharisees weren't content with who he was in power. The Pharisees had a really good spot in their minds. They had standing, they had prestige, they had power, they had perceived authority. And I think in the end, regardless of who they thought Jesus was deep down in their hearts, they were not content to give this over to this man. Jesus. The Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, but they wanted an earthly king, didn't they? They wanted someone who would overtake the oppression. They wanted to be free of Rome and its, Rome's power and dominion over them. They wanted a preconceived idea of what my, the Messiah would be. They were very, if you will, myopic self-focused in their perspectives. When I think about trying to bring that, what I've seen in the Pharisees, in the Jewish people, and how they perceived 
the Messiah, how they perceived Jesus. I think about bringing that forward. How does the world today see Jesus? We think about the Mormons. How do they see Jesus? They see him as a created being separate from God and destined to be God of this world. God, little g, minimized in the process. The Jehovah Witness, and this is a direct quote from their website, we do not worship Jesus as we do not believe that he is Almighty God. The Muslims, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet of God and was born to a Virgin Mary. They also believe he will return to earth before the day of judgment to restore justice and defeat the false Messiah, also known as the Antichrist. And so we see there, no one is ultimately denying a concept of Jesus, but they're denying a Jesus that was from heaven and is God. I would say to you that in any context, whether it be in your own heart or whether you're engaging with other people, everything ultimately rises and falls upon your or someone else's concept of who Jesus is. Everything's anchored in that one idea, that one understanding, because it shapes everything. I even get to be thinking about today's liberal Christianity, and I use liberal Christianity as a descriptor, not per se as an affirmation of their standing. From Hillsong Church, again, straight off their website, Jesus commends the Apostle Peter's confession of him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Because Jesus knew that who he is and could be to us has the power to change lives. Yet he is also the human Jesus, the personal friend who knows what we are going through and cares about us. There's enough truth in there to be confusing and yet it's packed full of deception. Because Jesus isn't simply your buddy that wants to hang out with you. He wants to not make your life better. He wants to take your dead life and make it new and alive again. He's not looking to hang out with you this weekend and watch the ball game. I see there's a billboard I've seen a lot on downtown on TV as well. He gets us. Question I ask is, do we get him? You know what? You see the fundamental perspective that is really distorted here. I was even thinking about atheists. I came across this quote here. For most of my life, I had taken it for granted that Jesus, although certainly not a god, was nevertheless an historical personage. Perhaps a magician skilled in hypnosis. To be sure, I knew that some of the world's greatest scholars had denied his existence. Again, no one here in these quotes, in these perspectives, is denying some idea of a human Jesus, but all of them are denying fundamentally his deity. And that is what Peter is affirming here in Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is affirming that he came from heaven, he is God, and he is the chosen one, the anointed of God. And so you see the conflict, the, the distance that we have with the world and their perception 
of who Jesus is. Back here to our verses here, Jesus questioned, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We see listed here John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the great prophets. And so what we see here is even in this instance, as the, peop- as the disciples have been engaging with the people and listening to what they're saying, we hear them thinking still in human terms. They hear that possibly one of the great prophets of old, human, maybe has come back to life. But once again, you're still hearing the humanity that they're trying to grapple with and not the deity that they seem to really be missing by and large here. The people knew of Jesus, the people just simply did not know Jesus. They were aware of the things that he did, the miracles that he worked, the healings that he did. They were aware of the things he said, such as parables, wise sayings, uh, his ability to communicate truth. They were aware of these things. But they were really looking for a particular kind of Messiah. And Jesus was simply not, if you will, fitting the bill. I have to ask us here at this moment, is that not us, though? Do we not have moments in life where things come along and we're like, this is really not a good time for this? Lord, I'm not sure you understand how busy my life is right now. Um, Can we do this maybe next year? And we miss the really the true work of what God is doing in our lives. Because sometimes we have this sense in which we we want to reject those challenges, those moments, challenging people, challenging circumstances. We want to push that away. But if we're going to really recognize that God is sovereign, providential, that he's going to move in our lives. He's always shaping the circumstances around us to mold us more into the likeness of his son. Then should we ever look at any situation that comes across our path and say, this is really not a good time. Should we really embrace the moments as they come and let the work of the Lord be accomplished in our lives in the process? As we see here, Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's a title that he used some 80 times in the New Testament. And it's interesting how we see Jesus expressing, really, it's a title of Messiah. And when we think of Messiah, we're thinking of Christ coming from heaven, taking on flesh, and being the Savior of the world. But this title, this name here is interesting how Matthew even himself unpacks it and uses it in many forms throughout Scripture or throughout his gospel. In Matthew 1.25, we see the firstborn son. His name is Jesus. In 3.17, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 9.6, the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. 13.37, 13.37, he that sows the good seed is the son of man. 
1811, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 1928, the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of glory. 2028, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give life as a ransom for the many. So we can recognize this title, Son of Man, had great depth to it. Jesus was not just simply thinking of a catchy nickname, but he was revealing who he was in depth, in power, in capacities. Who they were speaking to was the Son of God from heaven with all power to accomplish all things. He was deity clothed in flesh. We even see in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 this uh, title, Son of Man, used. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And we see this prophetic word of Jesus. And He came to the Ancient of Days and came near before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This title is one of the Messiah, the chosen one, the one that they would have been looking for. To kind of stop for just a moment and kind of chase a thought here, uh, I've always been intrigued by this idea that God took on flesh. Jesus is the only one that can do that. It's called the hypostatic union. Uh, the term was first discussed at the church uh, council of Chal Chalcedon in October of 451 A.D. And if you think about what the church is dealing with, the early church, really when you begin to get post-John and get into the first 100 years after Jesus' ascension, is they have begun to canonize Scripture, canonize the New Testament, but they don't have commentaries. John MacArthur hadn't been born yet. And so we recognize that the church was dealing with issues and people were asking questions. And so the church had to respond to this and craft uh, some statement. And this is what this church council was about. We see in the Bible that this relationship is explained in Hebrews 1.3, meaning His Son, Jesus, who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. We see God, the personage of God, we see the personage of Jesus Christ taking on flesh and dwelling among men here. He's both God and humanity simultaneously. The early church fathers recognized the need to work through this. Dr. John, Mc, uh, John Piper adds, in early church discussions, as Greek thinkers tried to find agreeable terms with those who spoke in Latin, the word hypostasis came to denote not the sameness in the Godhead, God's one essence, but the distinctness, the three persons. So it began to be used to refer to something like the English word person. 
The hypostatic union may sound fancy in English, but it's actually a simple term. Hypostatic means personal, and therefore the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Fully God, fully flesh, simultaneously at all times. And therefore, as we think about this, this uh, there's a phrase here called uh, that he is consubstantial with God as to his deity and with mankind to his humanity, fully both simultaneously. We see in Philippians 2 where this is described in a little more detail. Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus' humanity died on the cross, his deity did not die, but his flesh did. In his humanity, he was born like any other child, not conceived in the same way, but he was born like any other child. He would hunger, he would thirst, he would need rest, he could teach. And if we think about him at 12 years old, uh, being stayed back with the Pharisees and talking about the teachers, he seemingly could learn. He walked from place to place. He could be physically wounded and he could be put to death. And this could all be done to his humanity. In his deity, he could heal, cast out demons, know the thoughts of men, walk on water, walk through walls. He could disappear, cause fish to overflow nets, calm storms, and feed the multitudes. I, as, I, as I stand here this moment and I process all of that, in faith I believe it, in logic and ration I can trust it, in the Word I see it revealed to me, and yet I recognize how much bigger it is than my finite capacities can fully comprehend. But that is who we serve. That is the Lord of all creation. Next point here is, who do you say Jesus is? Depending on how you answer this question reveals one of two stark realities. If you say He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then your eternity is set in that reality. If you are not in Christ and you deny that reality, then your eternity is set in hell. We are in Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we've had this truth revealed to us. This is what the text is going to remind us of. Is that Peter's affirmation of Christ as being the Messiah is not something he figured out by deductive reasoning. It was revealed to him and then he professed it. There's not a one of us in here this morning that sits here as a result of you having figured out Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation and you're the Savior of your soul. This is a revelation that came about as a result of regeneration, of turning your stone heart to flesh, of giving you understanding and insight. This is a spirit work. This is why when we do evangelism or apologetics, 
And we walk away from some people thinking, why do they not get it? We recognize that our arguments, that was my best argument that I had right there. I nailed it and they walked away. What do we recognize in that moment? It's just a spiritual battle. And what we want to have happen is not them, not them to be convinced of what you put before them, but we want a Holy Spirit to work in their hearts for regeneration and sanctification and salvation. That's what we want to see. That's why often when we think about the tension in the spiritual battles that you face in life, they're to be fought in word, but they're often to be fought on your knees in prayer. Because again, these are spiritual battles that we are facing. Verse 15 says, Who do you say that I am? So think about this for the disciples as he posed this question to them. They'd been traveling with them. Uh, they had been walking with them. They ate with him. They watched him perform miracles to heal, to cast out demons. They spent time with him. They were invested into him and he into them. And so this question is very personal. It's directed at that much as last weekend, Martha and I got to go up to Wisconsin and do a creation conference up there. We were blessed by the time the people were sweet and kind, but I recognized the distinction in coming and speaking to a group that I don't know well versus coming and speaking to people that I love and I'm invested into daily. And so my heart is encouraged. My heart wants to exhort. And I know so many of the struggles that you, you face this very day. I know the history, the journey. So there's this personal sense of me standing up here before you in this moment. There's a personal dynamic that's going on. Peter's confession, I think in many respects, we see it as him as the voice of the group. But I think it is right with the exclusion of Judas Iscariot that this is a reflection of the whole group, all of the disciples, and their perspectives as to who Jesus was. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, this supreme confession would cost them much. They would be imprisoned, they would be hated, and they would be murdered. It's a reminder for us as well. John 15, verses 18 through 19 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? John 10, 30-33, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning Me? The Jews answered Him, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
the world hates Christ and all who are in Christ will also be hated. And that's, again, that's the path that is before us. Peter's spirit-led revelation is important. And I think it's important that we recognize this distinction with the world. That as we engage with them, as we talk with them, as we share with them. For, and I know you, like me, you watch the news, you're on the internet, you read the papers, you read the magazines, you have the conversations, and you can hear in their tone, they don't know Christ. You can see them grappling with the tensions of the world from an earthly fallen perspective. Because their hope is set here. And so the desire is to make here as good as they can make it. And while we want to, by common grace, share in that joy of what God has done here, we do recognize we want to hold on loosely to what we have before us. Because once again, we're looking to eternity. I'm not, I, I've put in my notes here to, be, to ask a personal question of who do you say Jesus is. I think we'll unfold some more of that as we go. But I guess for just the moment, I would ask you to just reflect on that yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? Is there someone in here that would say, I'm not sure who Jesus is? And if so, that's worthy of continued personal reflection. Peter's supreme confession here from verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This word Christ is equal to the Messiah. And so this Son of the living God denotes the relationship that Jesus Christ in His humanity has with the Eternal Father. And so Jesus is Christ. Christ is Messiah. The Messiah is from God. And God is alive, real, active. Therefore, Jesus Christ is alive, real, and active. And He is the chosen one to bring forth the Word to a lost and dying world. Remember, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, for the Messiah, should I say, they were looking for someone to deliver them from the oppression that they were feeling. They were looking for a king who would reign in power with justice and mercy. They wanted to have their enemies vanquished. Were they wrong to look for this and desire this? They weren't, were they? How many of us would love to see that happen? You know what? It's not wrong to, I don't think it's wrong to desire that. But there's a timing issue. There's a fullness of Christ unfolding his kingdom that's important to recognize at this moment. Because certain things had not been done at this point in time. Christ had come to unfold his kingdom, but it was not time for the world to see the fullness of his kingdom. Jesus is not the king of the country of Israel. 
He's not the king of the Middle East. He didn't come to defeat Pilate or Herod or Caesar. It wasn't his purpose. But it was what the people wanted, wasn't it? That's what they were looking for, was to have those oppressive leaders, world leaders, defeat them. Well, I tell you, you, you hear the events surrounding Israel and you're like, Lord, these people in Gaza, they need to stop. These people in Syria, and then you hear Iran, and then you hear Russia, and then you hear China. Lord, there's a lot of people that need to be shut down right now. I want you to take care of these earthly rulers. And in due time, He will. But the fullness of time has not come for this work to be accomplished and for the fullness of His kingdom to be done. See, in this particular moment, the wrath of God, if Jesus had come into this world and simply went back out in a similar fashion that He came in and never died in the flesh on the cross, to satisfy the demands of God's wrath, when God's wrath is poured out, it is poured out on all of us. And so Christ, this is all that we're talking about going back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden and the prophetic one and the need to have a sacrificial lamb and the shed blood. We're talking about moving into Exodus 12 and we get into the, to the houses the, the night that the death angel came uh, at Passover, that shed blood was on the doorpost because the death angel would see that and pass over. That shed blood is symbolic of Christ. And so that fullness of His work needed to be accomplished. And until that got accomplished, it wasn't time. I get to be thinking about the wrath of God and just even in a general concept... I mean, again, we get longing for wanting to see God defeat our enemies. And trust me, He will. Uh, Revelation 15, verses 7 and 8. Just in prophetic language, we, we recognize the power that's before us. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then verse 1 of the next chapter, Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of, dead, of, of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judge these things. 
For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. I would like to draw this distinction for us to recognize the world, because of who you are in Christ, the world is going to hate you. And there are going to be days that's not going to feel very good. But because of who you are in Christ, you will not feel the weight of the wrath of God poured out upon you. And I'm really confident that if I had to pick between the two, I'd rather be hated by a lost world than feel the wrath of God upon me. There is a distinction between the two. And so whatever you move forward and you are anxious about, remember that those who are in Christ, it is important to recognize how He is going to respond to us. Paul says in Romans 3, 23-25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God, publicly, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation for his, in His blood through faith for a demonstration of His righteousness. And so God's wrath was poured out, not on us, but upon Christ to satisfy the demands of His wrath so that who, for all who are in Christ, for all who have Christ's righteousness applied to us, when it comes time for God to pour out His wrath, He will look at us and what will He see? Christ's righteousness. Our redemption. Because we are sealed in Christ. And that is our hope. That is the heartbeat of the Gospel. Let me ask you, are you in Christ? And can you truly make these kinds of confessions as to Christ being the Messiah? And I want you to ask yourself sincerely this question. This is not a, a point to be defensive about. As a brother in Christ, I want you to be sure that you are in Christ and you understand that. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Ask that question. Do you pass? 2 Peter 1, 10-11 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. As we think about and our final point here is the great joy of this confession is the church. We see Christ talking about as he responds to Peter's affirmation, Peter's declaration, his confession here. We see a few things I'd like to talk with you about. First of all, let me just reread this verses 18 through 20. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. <clears throat> I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. When I think about things that I have been a part of in the past, things that you may have been a part of in the past, church outreach programs, times where we've canvassed our neighborhood to invite people to the revival that's coming next week, the events that we've held, such tendencies we have to entertain the world. We want to be liked by the world, don't we? And we often find ourselves in an effort to get more people in the door, compromising how church is to look. When we entertain a lost world, we're committed to having to entertain them. And when we set the bar of morality lower and lower to get them in the door in order to keep them, we have to keep the bar low. Certainly we would hope that there would be some salvation in that and we would hope they would respond to the gospel. But what we see in the church is often a compromise to the world as we see the world reflecting, or the church reflecting the world more and more. The question that I ask is, is this what Jesus had in mind for building the church? Entertainment? Don't get me wrong, I think we should be a light in the world. I think we should be engaging with our lost. I think we should be inviting them to church. But I don't want to entertain them to church. I want to be able to have them... Quick digression. I don't stand up here in front of you with any inherent authority within myself. I simply want to be a channel, a vessel through which the Word of God flows through me and the Holy Spirit moves. The only authority that I can claim in standing in front of you is I want to stand upon the Word, the authority of the Word of God. And so when I want a lost person to come to church, what I want them to see is not a great experience, but I want them to, un to see the Word of God put forth, rightly divided. Because there's nothing that I can give in this process that's going to make a difference in their lives other than them having a good experience. And they can still go to hell have having had a good experience with me. But I want to put forth the Word of God because that is the authority that any one of us stands upon. As we see here in this passage, Jesus is talking about Peter, uh, which is the Greek word Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, the church will be built. Now what I think we're looking at here is what Jesus is saying to Peter is you as an individual, you as disciples who would be the apostles, you are going to be the foundation of the church. And we turn into Acts and we see that very thing being played out. As we see the apostles become the anchor point, the base upon which Jesus would build the church. And I believe this is what's being declared here. This foundation is so critically important. The apostles, the, the disciples, would be uniquely equipped 
with, I believe, short-term blessings, gifts, powers from the Holy Spirit to do unique things to declare their authority to get the church started. I do believe there is a cessation of gifts, but don't be distracted by that perspective. What I would encourage you to do is recognize the depth of what is actually going on here. The church in its current form is starting here. The apostles uniquely equipped are doing something special here. Jesus' declaration to Peter and the disciples is, I'm going to do something special upon you here. And so in moving forward, there was, I think there would have been a cessation of certain gifts because of the uniqueness of the moment that was present at that time. When we think about what's going on here, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. We see this Spirit-filled individuals. Now, are we filled with the Spirit? Yes, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Are we endowed with gifts? Yes. Should we use them to edify the body? Yes. Please do that. Go do that. Acts 2, 1 through 4, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I share that passage with you just to remind you of the importance that when Jesus ascended into heaven, He did not leave them without the presence of God. And so here we see the Holy Spirit coming and filling their lives just as we experience here today. The next point here is Christ's work in building His church is an ongoing process. The gates of hell will not overpower it. The importance of the perseverance of the saints. Church, we persevere to the end. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, They whom God had accepted in His beloved Son effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from a state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and eternally be saved. Church, you will not be overcome. You will not be overcome. You've been called to persevere. We've been called to walk in the Spirit. We've been called to be fervent in prayer. We've been called to demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit. We've been called to put on the full armor of God. We've been called to be salt and light in the world. We do these things until Christ comes and takes us home. The church holds the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As believers, we have biblical authority. As I've already talked about that authority, we stand on that authority. I stand up here in this role today 
with that's my heart's desire is to do that. But each one of you stand on authority. We have the ability to rebuke sin and cast out unrepentant brothers or sisters out of the church. That is the call of Scripture, and we have that authority to do that. We can declare what is or is not acceptable to God. And we don't do that out of our own wisdom, but because we understand the Word and what it tells us, and we can understand that relationship. We are not a moral judge, but we have biblical authority. And so we press the Word upon the world. We press the Word upon one another. This is where we stand upon the authority of the Word of God. We can be certain our judgments correspond with the judgment of heaven. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And as we close here, Jesus is telling His disciples to not tell the people that He is the Messiah. And that somewhat seems counterintuitive. I would only offer that this is in all likelihood a sense of the timing of how He is going to reveal Himself fully to the world in moving forward. And it's simply a reminder as John 18.36 says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Church, may the, may the confession of your heart of Christ as Messiah come from a genuine place a place where you're in Christ. If you have questions about that, take time to reflect and evaluate who you are in Christ. And as you recognize and answer that question in the affirmative, then simply walk in that. There's joy in that. Knowing that the Holy Spirit abides within you and God is providentially going to bring about the culmination of all things to His glory. Amen? Amen? Father, thank You for our time that we've shared this morning, for the words that have been put forth, the opportunity to allow Your Spirit to move in each of us. May we in grace and mercy move with one another, edifying the body. Father, I know I speak for each one in this room, that we long for the return of your Son. And so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.